So this is kind of a strange lesson um, that I've planned on doing this morning. Um, it's really the result of a lot of sermons that I've heard, conversations I've had with brethren here, brethren in Indiana, just a lot of different things that have put this on my mind that have helped me see how important this is, but also how encouraging this concept is when it's understood and embraced. Um, so hopefully it'll make sense as we go through the lesson. Uh, but really, I think 1 Corinthians 7 conveys the point, which 1 Corinthians 7, you know, you may read that and think, what's, what's the point Paul's even trying to make here? And I think this is the point, that there is a great glory in living for Jesus, but also a, a hard-to-understand simplicity that comes with that glory. Um, and so we're going to work on unpacking that uh, through the lesson this morning. And again, this is meant to be a very encouraging lesson that hopefully will maybe clarify some things that give you more joy, more peace, and more ability to find more encouragement um, where you are in your relationship with God and even your current life circumstances. And I want to start <coughs> with thinking about these questions. What does it mean to get the most out of life? Like in your mind, if you were to think about somebody living life to the fullest, what would that look like? Or if you were to live your ideal life, like the life you dream of, what would that look like? Like what would need to change in your life for you to be living the life that you would think would be for you ideal? And I want you to think like as hard as it is, what if you asked Jesus those questions? And I think based on some things that Jesus taught, I think we can have a, a pretty good idea of the way that Jesus would ask or answer that question. So imagine, what if you asked Jesus, what does it mean to get the most out of life? What does it mean to live the fullest possible life? There's a couple of verses that I think are worth thinking about in terms of introduction. And this is all going to take us to 1 Corinthians 7. In Luke 16, Jesus was talking about the values of God's kingdom, the kind of priorities that a person is to have in God's kingdom. And in Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees, they were hearing what Jesus was saying. And it says, because they were lovers of money, they were scoffing at him. And so Jesus in Luke 16, 15, he responded to their scoffing, saying, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And this is really the key thing. For that which is highly esteemed among, among men is detestable in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Sometimes it's been helpful for me for just that to ring in my mind, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You know, worldly achievement, worldly success, climbing the corporate ladder to the highest possible point. You know, all of the things that the world, without God, admires and looks up to, what all of those things do is they require a reduction of appreciating God and serving him wholeheartedly, being able to understand the kind of values that are unique to faith. So when we look to the world and, and what the world thinks it means to get the most out of life, it's not only wrong, it's, it's so wrong that it's actually detestable in God's sight. So I want to suggest to you that if, if we want to find what it means to live life to the fullest, we're not going to find that on Instagram or on movies or in great novels only Jesus is really able to tell us what it really means to live life to the fullest. And again, this isn't meant to just be like a very convicting lesson. It's meant, it's meant to be very encouraging. So John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give us what real life is, abundant life. And I would argue that when we look at Paul's life, that living for Jesus, even if it seems simple and very mundane, 
is the greatest adventure we can go on in our lives. It is the most exhilarating life. It is the most adventurous life. It is the most incredible life. Even if the appearance of that life is small, mundane, simple, and seemingly very uneventful. So it's still the introduction. I know that's kind of a long introduction. What if you were to ask the Apostle Paul what it means to get the most out of life? Look at 1 Corinthians 4. So I do want to read this with you. 1 Corinthians 4. The thing with the Corinthians, what Paul said in chapter 7 would have been very radical for them. This is a group that when Paul wrote this letter to them, they were prioritizing the world. They were seeking the world's ambitions. They were seeking the world's values. And what this was doing is it was reducing the great glory of everything involved with God's kingdom and applying everything that relates to the priorities of God's kingdom. So we see this in chapter 4, verse 8. And Paul, he contrasts himself with the Corinthians. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. And what he's saying there kind of sarcastically is, you know, you think you've achieved greatness, but it's just a lie. You've actually achieved nothing. Verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. As men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to consolidate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Was Paul living the fullest life? I would argue again that Paul was modeling what it really means to live the most adventurous life, the most exhilarating life, the most fulfilling life. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and you don't need to turn here, but he would say, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So I think we need to be careful to not end up reducing the glory of what we have, the glory of what it means to live for Christ and not let the world influence our perspective of, again, the great adventure that it is to live for Christ and to understand the glory of applying the will of God in serving Christ and even, again, mundane, seemingly simple and uneventful ways every day. So this lesson is going to be based on trying to appreciate the glory of living lives that the world is incapable of seeing as exhilarating, adventurous, and fulfilling. Whereas what Jesus and the Apostle Paul would say is if we are living for Jesus, we are living the most fulfilling life, even if that involves homelessness, working, toiling, suffering. Um, I don't get the impression from 1 Corinthians 4 that Paul's life would have made like a great Instagram gallery or anything like that, that he wouldn't have a life that the world would look at it and find that to be very fulfilling. And yet, again, what Paul would argue is that he is living a life that models the fulfillment of what Christ brought. So back to 1 Corinthians 7. Back to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 7 is a bit of a strange chapter, but I think it's an incredibly important chapter. I think 1 Corinthians 7 lays out principles about life 
and the values of God's kingdom in a way that contradicts what I think we naturally maybe are prone uh, to think. The idea of the verses we looked at is that life's fulfillment is actually not found in what we may think are ideal circumstances. But actually life's fulfillment is in focusing on God's commandments. You'll notice that in verse 19. And we didn't read this, it's not in the reading, but in verse 35, notice he says, This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So with that, let's read these verses again, uh, 17 through 31. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. And time out. We're going to look here and in 1 Thessalonians 4, and in both of these places what Paul emphasizes is this isn't just you know, advice he's giving, but this is something that he commands and directs consistently, that these are principles that he consistently teaches to different churches. Verse 18. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uh, in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that the form from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Um, So just some general points here with this chapter, is in 17 through 28, the idea is each person's diverse circumstances can uniquely be used to bring God glory and to teach valuable lessons to the individual and those around him in very unique and very, very vital ways. He's talking about marriage throughout the chapter, but it seems like in this section he's more giving the broader principle at work beyond uh, some of the marriage principles that he lays down. Um, I want you to think about this. If a person is very poor and they're surrounded by people who have more wealth, what might that poor person struggle with? (laughs) Or if a person is single and they're surrounded by people who are happily married, what might that single person struggle with? If a person is a slave in this context, and they're surrounded by people who are free, what might that slave struggle with? If a person is a Gentile in a church where they're surrounded by Jews who are well-educated in the law, lots of connections all over the world with other Jews, just very established, very you know, grounded in holiness and God's teaching, and the Gentile hardly knows his right hand from his left spiritually, doesn't really know anybody, doesn't have any significant connections, What might that Gentile 
struggle with if he's surrounded by Jews. I think we struggle the most with feeling like we're lacking something, where we'd be more fulfilled if we had it. You know, I'm not married. I'd be more fulfilled if I had a wife. When, you know, it's easy to say this now being married, of course, but when I was single, you know, of course, you know, usually what happens is it's like you've got to get married, right? Like you need to get married. And I remember I sat down with a brother that I love and respect, and he nearly rebuked me for being single. Like he was like, Brian, you need to get married. And I was like, I mean, I hear you, but First Corinthians 7, and I didn't, I didn't say that, but it was on my mind. Um, I would think about this a lot, really, that is there a value to being single, even if that's very overlooked? Does a person need to get married? No, they don't. You know, so in this chapter, what Paul says is, you may think you need to get married in order to find fulfillment. That's not the case. And ironically, in this chapter, it seems like there were people in the Corinthian church that thought they could better serve God or be more fulfilled not being married when they were married. And so he has to tell them, like, if you're married, stop seeking to get away from your spouse. Like, love your wife. It's not necessarily that you have to be single. So if you're married, be content in your marriage, right? Don't seek to be released from your wife if you're single. Don't think that you've got to get married or your, your life's going to be empty and unfulfilled. And I think it's the same principle with a slave. A slave could become a Christian and then start praying, God, all right, here we go. Free me from my slavery. You know, I'll be able to serve you so much better and be so much more fulfilled if I can get out of slavery. And yet, you notice what Paul says. Imagine being a part of this church. You're a slave who's thought that way. And then in verse 21, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. You know, so Paul's not saying necessarily that you can't seek better life circumstances. He says, if you have the opportunity to be free, go ahead and take it. But what if you don't get that opportunity? You know, do you need to become free to have a fulfilling, complete, joyful life? Or is it more important, verse 19, to learn how to navigate your circumstances in keeping God's commandments and learning to find joy and contentment in those circumstances? So I think the idea is we may feel discouraged or lacking or circumstances we may think like this isn't ideal, I wish it wasn't like this, I wish my life was different, I wish I had something I don't have, or that something wasn't in my life that is there. But the problem is we may not actually be seeing what God sees. You know, so again, in chapter 7, as a person was called, he's to remain in that condition. And I think that would be a hard pill to swallow for many people whose life condition in the Corinthian church was not what they want, and I think it's, it's the same for us. And so I think instead of discouragement or feeling like I need something more, what we need to see is that God may have us in our current circumstances for a reason we may not understand or be appreciating, and that there may be valuable lessons we need to learn and even teach others through our contentment that God is seeking to teach not only us, but again, those around us. And we'll, we'll flesh this out a little bit more through the lesson in more specific ways, but just generally we don't need to be in other circumstances in order to find fulfillment or to live a full life full of peace and joy. That's not the impression God gives. That's really the influence of the world that pushes us to think in that way. We don't need a better job, better house, different location. What we need is to learn to find contentment serving the Lord and focusing on his will. 29 through 31 is a very strange set of verses. And I think it's the idea that we need to learn to see life like a terminally ill patient. You know, when somebody says, or when somebody hears, you know, if they're terminally ill, you've got six months to live. 
does that change their values and priorities? Does that change how they spend their time or think about their life or things they possess? And I think it's the idea in verse 31, we need to understand that everything in the world is completely transient. If we weep, it's not going to last forever. If we rejoice, it's not going to last forever. If we buy something, it's not going to last forever. That we need to understand that our faith is based on prioritizing the eternal, not the temporary. And it's the eternal that gives us fulfillment, not the temporary. So surprisingly, verse 29, those who have wives should be as though they had none. That's a very hard verse. I think what Paul is saying is, I love my relationship with Eva. I think our marriage is very encouraging. But the reality is, our relationship is not going to last forever. Our relationship is transient. My fulfillment cannot be based in my relationship with my wife. And so I think what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, you're using the world as if your fulfillment is in the world and in these relationships. We need to find fulfillment in the Lord. Then I can lose relationships. I can lose possessions. I can lose my job. I can lose my house. I can end up in hard circumstances I didn't expect and still realize I can find joy. And God may be teaching me lessons I need to learn, and I can still glorify God mightily if I focus on his will, even if what's happening is not ideal. And I think it's the idea as well, we need to be deliberate to renew and fortify our priorities on the eternal. You know, so when he's saying all these different examples with marriage relationships, weeping, rejoicing, purchasing, you know, it's like you're constantly reminding yourself, this is not the most important thing. And you're reminding yourself, this is not the most fulfilling thing. And this may sound like a very (laughs) silly example, but what I've tried to do is if I like watch a movie with Eva, you know, I'll tell myself in my mind afterwards, this is not the most fulfilling thing. (laughs) We've just watched something where nobody in that movie was trying to praise God or live for the Lord. So even though this may have been entertaining and fun, this is not the most important thing. This is not the most fulfilling thing. And I think the idea is, it keeps you from over-investing in things that cannot ultimately satisfy you. You know, watching movies is fine. Going on vacation is fine. Having possessions is fine. But we've got to renew our perspective that those are not the things that can fulfill us and that it's all transient and temporary. Even our marriages are transient. And those relationships, they may last forever in an eternal sense, but at least temporally, We can't depend on those things for our fulfillment because they just don't last. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's a section here that uh, is really interesting because Paul directly talks about the kind of ambitions that we are to have. And just like the point of the lesson, it's very simple and it's very mundane. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. And I'll get to what's on the board after reading the verses since it's nearly a restatement of what's said here. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. At the end of verse 11, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, just as we now command you. He says, just as we commanded you. And in 2 Thessalonians, he seems to command very similar things again. So just over and over, 
he kind of says the same thing to the Thessalonians, just this very simple instruction, live a quiet life, work, and be content with that, right? So, and I want to emphasize, as I kind of have it a different color on the board, this is a command. So this isn't like that part of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul's like, you know, I have an opinion, and it is an inspired opinion. Here he's saying like, no, this is an instruction that we need to learn to embrace this ambition. So the command is to live a quiet life. Another translation, instead of tend to your own business, is mind your own business and work with your hands, as was commanded. So I just want to very briefly, just very simply define some of these things. That to strive to live a quiet life means we're okay with being unassuming and not desiring popularity with the world. You know, that we're not trying to be impressive to our coworkers. We're not trying to think that we need to climb the corporate ladder so that we have a big position that pays a lot of money and people will respect us and we'll have authority. And it's not that we're trying to be someone of esteem either, you know, but that we're just trying to live a quiet and unassuming life, even if that means that we are completely overlooked to the world, just as what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. <laughs> I have one thing with mind your own business. Be careful of social media, right? It's really easy with the internet and social media. You know, social media is not bad. It's not bad. We just have to be careful about it. You know, I've, I've tried to be self-aware, which I'm not always good at that, but there's times where I'll have to pull way back on my involvement with Facebook, and I'll have to, like, make commitments sometimes, like, stop commenting on things so much, because uh, it just, like, makes me focus on that. And sometimes, you know, regulate the amount of time I have on Facebook and things like that, right? So I think we just have to be careful about how much we are absorbing of other people's business, right? How much we're absorbing about the way other people's lives look, the aesthetic of how beautiful other people's houses are, the fun that other people seem to be having, the vacations that other people are going on. You know, it's not wrong to keep up with people. It's just we need to be self-aware. When we are not minding our own business, it takes us out of the mind of a servant it takes us out of the mind of contentment, and I think we just need to be very honest with ourselves when that's happening so that we can put our focus where God desires it to be. And the idea of working with our hands, something I want to say first about this. The world tells us you need to work a job that for you is fulfilling. You need to enjoy your job. You need to find fulfillment out of your job. You need to do something where it feels like you're making a difference. Whereas what God says is, just work hard. You know, provide for your needs. And if you can have something to share, that's good. The value of work, the value of work is not that I get to buy nice things. It's not that I can afford to go to nice, nice places. It's not that I'm just trying to do what I have to do so that one day I can retire. And again, it's not that buying nice things is wrong. It's not that going to nice places is wrong. It's not that retiring is wrong but it's that the value of work is work. <laughs> and so what Paul is saying, I think, with working with our own hands is, you know, I don't think a lot of us have, like, labor jobs, but I don't think it's that you're just working a labor job, it's that you are working. You know, the goal is also not to have a passive income. You know, it can be very appealing if I just get a bunch of properties and rent them out, I'll be living the good life. I don't have to work, I can just sit around, I can go on vacation, I can travel. That's not the good life. The value of work is the work itself. There's a value to work where Paul is saying, stop trying to get out of work. The value of work is the labor. It's the responsibility. And so even though work can be hard, 
We might be in an environment that feels like it's draining your soul. There's a value to learning to work hard. I debated bringing up this illustration. Um, I've talked in the good bit in the past about the job that I had at UPS, especially at Alabama, that I wanted to quit that job, like literally, like thousands of times. But I remember I would think consistently, Jeremiah had to learn to deal with hard circumstances in Israel, and he couldn't get away. And I was like, I can quit this job. It'd be okay if I quit the job. I'm sure I can find a job that would be less emotionally and spiritually draining. It was a very toxic environment. Everybody was angry. Everybody gossiped all the time. My boss was very cruel and demanding. My coworkers complained all the time. And it was just my employees would get mad at me. My boss, it was just was incredibly volatile, toxic. Nobody's getting the sleep they need. It's a very early hours anyway. So I knew I could find a better job. But that was a time in my life where I feel like I learned principles of faith more clearly than just about any other phase of my life. And again, I would think, you know, people like Jeremiah, they had to suck it up and learn valuable lessons in Israel. They didn't have a choice in the matter. They didn't get to think, well, maybe I'll go to a Gentile nation and things are going to be easier for me. Let me just get away from these people. And they wanted to. Jeremiah says he wished he could get away, but if he was going to continue in the work, he didn't have a choice. There's a value to working hard even when it seems like it's just draining the life out of you, learning endurance and learning the value of finding more encouragement in the Lord. It's a very valuable thing. And I think back to verses 9 and 10, you notice it's all one sentence flowing together. It's not just do this to do it. It's here is how you excel in love. That if we can get our ambitions simplified, and learn to just have more contentment in the simplicity of our lives, what that equips us to do is love with more excellence. So you notice in verse 10, the Thessalonians were already loving one another. And in fact, all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, these were brethren very busy in the lives of one another locally, but also on a broader scale, and yet they could still excel more. If we are going to grow for love, grow in love, which is in a sense, the more practical thing from these principles, we've got to get these principles straight first. Then we can have more capacity to love one another. And then finally, Colossians. I just want to point out how simple these instructions are in Colossians and just try to emphasize how valuable these things are to God. So in Colossians 1 and 2, there's all of these huge ideas of the great, unfathomable glory of who God is, who Jesus is, this incredible glory in the work that he's accomplished, the salvation he's given us. And these are big ideas. So big, in fact, when I read it, I feel like I'm just not able to orient my mind to understand it. These are very lofty ideas. And yet, these lofty, big ideas of God's work are funneled into these very intimate, simple, mundane instructions. And I think, again, what we're to see is there's glory in these things, that without faith, we are not equipped to appreciate the glory involved in these seemingly very, very simple, intimate applications. I'm going to read 17 through 25 um, before I read what's on the board there. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So verse 17, it's not just that he's saying you need to do this, but that we need to see that there is glory in learning how to do everything for the Lord and giving thanks in everything. So notice he says, whatever you do is intimate as even just a word or a deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You know, and and the way that I've tried to apply this is even things where, you know, again, if I watch a movie with Eva, that I thank God for the joy of doing that with my wife. And I thank God for the freedom he's given me to enjoy things like that. You know, so I think there's, there's ways where we can be more deliberate about thanking God and doing even very mundane things and seeing glory in those things and connecting those things to God. And so what is the greatest adventure of life? What is the most exhilarating thing? Learning to do everything we do for this incredible God, this incredible Lord, who is the highest authority, who has all power and all dominion, who has given us a salvation. We're literally seated with him in the heavenly places, and our old man of sin has been done away with. What does that ultimately look like? It looks like we do everything for the glory of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God. And I think it challenges the kind of person we often see as being most spiritual or useful. Um, you know, I want you to think, like, who's the person who's most useful to the kingdom or the person who does the most spiritual things? And kind of like my lesson on the role of an evangelist, I think a lot of times we think the person having the most Bible studies, they're the most useful, they're the person who's doing the most spiritual things. I think this chapter challenges that. That everything we do can be a spiritual thing. That husbands loving their wives, wives loving their husbands, families making sure that they're cultivating love within the household, raising kids, doing your work heartily, all of these things become, quote-unquote, spiritual things, where really all of us together are trying to serve God completely. And that may look very different with different opportunities we have in our lives, but really everything that we do with each other and the people around us should be spiritually focused on bringing glory to God. And so someone who does like specific things like Bible studies is not a more spiritual person because they do that. That should be done for the Lord, just like a wife loving her husband should be done for the Lord. 18 through 25, uh, as was referenced here as I was talking about this, that investing in our various roles in obedience to the Lord every day, no matter how mundane or difficult it might be or taxing it might be, it pleases God greatly and brings him glory. Look back at Colossians chapter 1 really quick. And look at verse 10. This is a prayer for the Colossians, and I think it's, it's important to keep this in mind. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is a prayer he's praying that they could have wisdom, understanding, all this. That you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Is God difficult to please? That may seem like a weird question. But I think we don't think enough 
about the fact that God is not difficult to please and that God is very pleased when we strive to serve him. So back to Colossians chapter 3, pleasing him in every respect. Verse 18, I'm just going to generally go over these. Look how simple this instruction is. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Every wife who genuinely tries to do that and learn it, as difficult as it might be, even if there's parts of that where it's like, I don't understand how to do it. If a wife is trying to do that, she is pleasing God and glorifying to God. And that's even evangelistic. You know, this idea that what we do, uh, glorifying God and, and, and shining the light of Christ, husbands loving their wives, and just even not being embittered against them, glorifies God. It pleases God. The time that a husband makes to do that is a spiritual thing. That's for the Lord. It's not just a a mundane thing. God's glory is held within that. Parents teaching their children to obey, teaching their children to obey them glorifies God. In verse 20, it's well-pleasing to the Lord and helping children to see that what you do matters to God. It's not just about the parents. It's about how this impacts God that you're willing to do this. For fathers to take responsibility for their role as a parent, not exasperating their children, but spending time with them, loving them, disciplining them, teaching them. When fathers take care with their children to raise them in the Lord, glorifies God. It's a spiritual thing. Slaves who might have a hard life, they might have an unreasonable master, they might have someone who punishes them when they don't deserve it. But if they are trying to obey their master, not with external service, them serving their master pleases God. It's a spiritual thing. God sees it. God appreciates it. And verse 23, I think, is um, a statement that shows that the slave and their work kind of transcends just that specific context. Whatever you do, and I think this is the idea of work, whatever work you might be involved in, do it heartily. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So who are you working for? Um, in verse 23 through 24, there's a term that I hear preachers use sometimes. You know, sometimes a preacher will say, oh, I had to get a secular job. And what they mean is, like, they're not being supported by a local church. You know, they've got to get, like, you know, a normal day job. They've got to get a secular job. Do you know what secular means? It means something without any spiritual or religious association. Is Colossians 3 saying that anything we do work-wise should have no religious or spiritual connotation at all? What Colossians 3 is saying, whatever work we're doing, that is not a secular job. Me, working as an evangelist, I am just as obligated to do that work heartily and to work hard in that as you are in whatever work you may be doing. And I think that would include wives, homemakers, whatever, that everything that we are doing, we're being mindful that this is something being done for the Lord rather than for men. And that if I'm working for the Lord it dramatically changes the joy that I can have in a very mundane job, the kind of attitude I'm able to have as I endure hardships. It changes my zeal for my work. It changes my attitude about what I do when nobody's looking. And so in verse 24, we know that from the Lord, we will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So again, who are you serving at your job? And what's the purpose of what you're doing? And can a person working a hard job still find joy and contentment if their job provides for their needs and the needs of their family? Do we need to have a great abundance in order to have fulfillment in life? 
Do we need to have an easier life to have a fulfilling life? Again, I would challenge that those ideas come more from the world than they do from God. So that's the lesson for this morning. Um, I hope that this has helped maybe, again, encourage perspective in a way that is emboldening and very encouraging, that when we are trying to serve God and just even exist in fellowship with him, that matters to God, and that is life's greatest adventure as we are transformed into the same image of Christ's glory from glory to glory as we apply applications that can seem so mundane and so uneventful And if we don't have faith, unfulfilling. And so I hope we find our lives more meaningful, more fulfilling as we obey God. If there's anything we can do for you this morning uh, in your relationship with God, we reserve a time here at the end as we stand and sing for needs to be brought forward before the church as we stand and sing.